Hey, Dan Talks listeners, welcome to another episode of Dan Talks. This week, I'm talking to Anne Fademan, who is an American essayist and reporter, and also a professor at Yale University, professor of writing. Her interests include literary journalism, essays, memoir, and autobiography. She has received many awards, including the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Current Interest, and the Salon Book Award. She is the author of many books, most recently, The Wine Lover's Daughter, a memoir, and I came across her work for the first time, embarrassingly, in Harper's Magazine. It was a piece called Frog, and it's about uh, her pet frog uh, that she and her family had for many, many years, and uh, it was a really poignant and funny and sad and just moving uh, piece of writing, and I was so happy when she agreed to Come on, Dan Talks. So without further ado, here is the fabulous Anne Fademan. So Anne, you're coming to me from Western Mass, right? That's right. And you come from a very literary family. Did you feel pressure to be really smart and articulate growing up? I'm not sure that there was pressure as much as simply an assumption, but it would be hard not to be articulate if you'd grown up with the kind of conversation that I grew up with around the dinner table. Uh, Nobody in my family would need any SAT prep to score high on the vocabulary sections. We just had to have dinner with our parents every night of our lives. That would uh, simply take care of it. And when you went to Harvard, did you feel like oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Did you feel like this feels right? I don't think I asked what I was doing there. I think I was just thrilled to be there. Nobody from my high school had ever gone to Harvard, um, but my older brother was there and I've followed rather uh, obediently, maybe too obediently in his footsteps. Uh, I had a great time in college. Also a lot of time in college I spent um, outdoors, backpacking, cross-country skiing, and canoeing with the Harvard Adam Club. That was my main extracurricular. So there were many seasons when I think I was pretty much away in a tent every weekend. And now teaching at Yale, do you feel like, I mean, what is it like spending so much time in these sort of prestigious, like rarefied spaces? Well, you know, when you're in them, you don't think of them that way. That's like asking a fish, gee, what's it like to be in water all the time? The fish is unaware of the water. Uh, so um, I've enjoyed both Harvard and Yale. It's it's really different being a teacher from the way it is being a student. Um, when I was a student at Harvard, I you know, I didn't feel I really knew very much. That was correct. Uh, uh, There were four times as many men in my class as there were women. So I was in a minority. Um, uh, So I was always a very junior member of the community, though I was enjoying being a member of the community. It's a little different when you're a teacher. So the main thing that I love about Yale is my students. and they come from all kinds of backgrounds. They've come to an elite place, but if you were to meet them, I'm not sure that they would all look and sound and dress and um, feel to you like um, you know, elite young people. The only thing that's elite about them is that they're all really smart, but they're marvelous. They are what I live for, among other things. 
do you feel like you've stuck the landing in terms of being a writer and with like the body of work that you have and like what your life is like now? I don't think you can ever feel that you stuck the landing. Then you just, you know, you sort of feel, well, gee, you know, I stuck the landing. Why should I uh, go back on the mat? Um, so no, I always hope that I'll stick the next landing. Well, let's talk about Funky. So I came to your work through your essay in Harper's titled Frog about your, is it male a frog, order a frog? Grow a frog. Grow a frog. Grow a frog is the brand. And, and it's really appalling that a species has a brand. Of course, there are African clawed frogs that aren't from the Grow a Frog company. Uh, African clawed frogs are used a lot in laboratories, for example. But uh, if somebody has a pet frog in the United States, it's very often something called a grow a frog, though I had no idea that it was a grow a frog frog until Bunky had been with us for a number of years. And you didn't know that he would basically live forever. No. So that was the catch with Bunky. Bunky belonged to that category of pets that kind of happened to you by accident rather than being chosen. You know, goldfish won at the fair, uh, baby turtles being given to you as a present. In this case, Bunky began as a uh, coupon left under a Christmas tree by a grandmother. Uh, eventually was uh, redeemed by mail for a tadpole. And the only other pet of that sort we'd had was in fact a goldfish one at a fair. Um, my husband won Rosebell the goldfish by um, very accurately tossing ping pong balls into small paper cups to the great joy of our small daughter. But Rosebell lasted for three days, causing grief for our daughter, cried so hard she had to miss summer day camp that day, um, but also was a good lesson, the very first death. You've got to start light. You hope it's a goldfish rather than a grandparent, for example. Um, so we figured that this tadpole you know, if it if it lasted long enough that we could see it um, metamorphose, wouldn't that be cool? Because looking at a tadpole day by day as it becomes a frog, that would be cool. Uh, but we just didn't think much about it. And we ended up having Bunky for either 16 or 17 years. And the fact that we're not quite sure which is a tragic sign that we just weren't paying as much attention to that frog as he deserved. You write so poignantly about the guilt you felt upon Bunky's death. Yeah, well, throughout Bunky's life, well, first of all, my husband, George, had been the one who uh, took care of Bunky, that is taking care of Bunky consisting of just two things, um, dropping in food pellets in the morning and we never looked up to see what else he might want. Only after he died did I, I, I learn that, oh, they love slugs and they love crickets and they love all these other marvelous things, wood lice. You know, he never got to eat a wood louse um, that some other frog owners take 
the trouble to feed their frogs. Um, in any case, Bunky had just sort of food nuggets from a little jar, um, and George would empty in a few into the top of the aquarium in the morning, and then every once in a while he would clean the aquarium. Um, I didn't do anything for Bunky except at one point say, you know, that aquarium looks kind of small. Why don't I look up and, I mean, it was this size that we bought from Grow a Frog, but, um, but why don't I look up and see what size aquarium he really ought to have? And well, he was in a four gallon aquarium and I looked up aquariums and they said minimum of 10 gallons. Um, and so you might imagine that then the next day I went out and bought a 10 gallon aquarium. But that's the problem. Uh, if you're somebody like me who tends to over-research, uh, the perfect is generally the enemy of the good. And so the problem was, well, I'd read that for grow frogs, you don't want a sort of tall, thin aquarium. You want a wide aquarium so they have a lateral swimming space and the nearest pet store, the only near pet store did have 10 gallon aquariums but not really the perfect uh shape and then there was another pet store exotic fish and pet world but that was four towns away um and well let's see if i was getting 10 maybe i should get 15 and maybe 20 would be better but then where would we put a 20 gallon aquarium and how would we empty the water when we needed to clean it it would be too heavy to carry to the kitchen sink and what kind of filter would it need um and i started reading about filters that were very loud bunky had been accustomed to a life of silence and there was a filter called an under gravel filter but then we'd have to get gravel and i'd read online about a frog um, that had swallowed some or rather choked on a fragment of gravel and the gravel had to be removed with tweezers by the owner just in the nick of time otherwise that poor frog would have died and so um in trying to decide well gosh what kind of aquarium what kind of filter what kind of gravel um what kind of you know objects uh, uh in the aquarium that he could hide behind um Basically, I never got the aquarium, and uh, I feel guilty about it to this day. So um, this essay that I wrote, in a way, was an act of public atonement, um, confessing my sins. But of course, that did not do Bunky a lick of good, because by the time I wrote it, he was long dead. And in a way, you're joking, but mostly you're not. Right. That is a very good description. You got it. At the risk of giving the ending away, which I encourage everybody to read the essay, um, I was so, to me, like the climax is the Bunky's burial. And there was the moment where it's time to say something. And your husband says, you did everything a frog should do. Well, he had already said, well, you, you know, you swam up to the top when I dropped your food nuggets in uh, and you came to the side and I could watch you. And then he was trying to think of something else to say. And that's what he said. And of course, it was both true and tragically untrue. That is, Bunky, given his captivity, 
given that he was compelled to live a life that his species was, species was not destined to live, did everything he possibly could and should have done. But um, he didn't do everything that a frog should do. A frog should be swimming in a pond. A frog should not be in an aquarium. A frog should be um, uh, eating all kinds of um, delicious bugs. And we often fantasized about releasing Bunky. We live in the country. There's a stream behind our house, but we couldn't do that. First of all, he would die uh, and he'd be immediately eaten by a raccoon. But also, you know, we live in northern New England. Um, but he was an African species. As soon as it got cold, he would die. Um, but also, uh, in this country, African clawed frogs are viewed as an invasive species and they outcompete other species and they pass pathogens to them and so on. Uh, and it's actually illegal to own African clawed frogs in many states because people release them because they don't want to flush them down the toilet or kill them in some other way. So we couldn't release Bunky. I mean, and we were, you know, we couldn't murder Bunky. We could have we really couldn't have. So we were just stuck with him forever, um, giving him what I view as basically a pretty awful life. That is, we were such good pet owners to keep a frog alive for 16 years or maybe 17. You know, doesn't that sound marvelous and ideal and attentive? But in fact, we were terrible pet owners. And I've read some of your other work. Um... I'm most taken by at large and at small, mostly because my observation of your work is that you take the small and you make it complex and sort of intricate and fascinating and give it implication beyond just the symbolism of the object or the event or the phenomenon. Do you, how do you sort of approach that topic farming or that like inspiration process or you know I don't know you do this like at large and at small was over the course of I think seven years how do you let those topics sort of marinate or pass through or stick like what is that process um they just sort of come to me that is uh there used to be an actual file folder called ideas. And when I'd have an idea, I'd write it on a piece of paper and I put it in there. Now there are computer folders. Um, and when I get, you know, when I read something that's related to that topic, I'll um, file it and add to it. And uh, eventually it's ready to write. But some of the things that I've written about, I've been interested in for a long time time the topics aren't very complicated so in at large and at small which started off as a series of columns for the american scholar which is a literary quarterly i was editing at the time um uh two of them are about food ice cream and coffee and i really like ice cream and coffee and oh here's an excuse and not that i had an expense account from that we we had absolutely no money at the american scholar but um uh i i nonetheless had a kind of professional excuse especially the ice cream one i just really have to eat a lot of ice cream in order to be under the influence of ice cream um ditto for 
coffee. So th things that had been, uh, well, with coffee, one might even say percolating, although I've never percolated my coffee. I make it in other ways. Um, and so then also they're in a category called the familiar essay, um, used a lot in early 19th century uh, Britain by people like Charles Lamb and William Hazlitt. One of the essays is actually about Charles Lamb. And they were about um, the, the author, but they're also about a topic. And the author uses, in those days, his own experience to frame the topic. So although I also like uh, reading and writing essays that are purely personal. The familiar essay gives the author and the reader, you know, a little bit of a break from ego. And I love doing research. So I learned really a lot about ice cream and about coffee, for example, um, and about Charles Lamb. Uh, so there are often things that have been loves, passions in my life. And then I think, oh, I'm really curious about that. Why don't I actually learn something about the history of ice cream or the chemistry of ice cream? And then I would think about what are the times in my own life when eating ice cream or making ice cream um, might have been especially important. And I might write down a dozen and then just use a couple in the eventual essay. But I, you know, an essay of that sort, I write to entertain myself. Is writing pleasurable to you? It is now. It didn't used to be. When I was in college, I guess the actual writing wasn't so bad, but the period leading up to writing uh, was completely miserable. I was filled with dread. I would procrastinate to the latest possible moment and then stay up all night um, after taking a no-dose. I still remember you know, the smell of those no-dose tablets, um, concentrated caffeine pills they were. Um, and once I actually got into the writing, I would think, oh, actually, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe I sort of like writing. I've got to remember this for next time, but I never would remember it. I would dread it again. Um, and it was only much later in life, in my 30s, that uh, writing became something that I wanted to do instead of feeling that I ought to do. And that conversion from ought to want, but you can't will it just has to happen, made all the difference in the world. And now I write just in the summers, I teach the rest of the time, and I cannot wait. I cannot wait for um, uninterrupted days when I get to write. Did you imagine that change would happen? Um, I hoped it would, but I couldn't imagine how it would happen because it's like, um, you know, a door that happened actually opens in the different direction. And so the more you push on it, the harder, you know, more it's getting stuck. Um, uh, so the more I tried to change, the more embedded my dread became. Um, but then I did change. And uh, it's amazing, really, that I decided coming out of college that I was going to be a writer. How many people decide to spend their lives doing something that they dread. Um, what gave me the idea that that would be a good idea? I have no idea uh, how I uh, could have been that um, foolish or brave, perhaps, but I'm glad I was foolish. 
What's easier, writing or talking? Oh, talking is certainly easier because it doesn't have to be perfect. And if you were to transcribe this conversation, and I hope to God you <laughs> never do that, uh, it, it, it wouldn't look very good on paper. Uh, we can be so much more imperfect when we talk. So I think the dread came from wanting everything to be perfect, feeling every sentence had to be perfect. And when I talk, that's simply not possible. I just have to go on to the next sentence. So sure, talking is easier. But that doesn't mean it's better exactly. Just because something is easier doesn't mean it's, it, it, it is more pleasurable. I mean, I guess it's more pleasurable in a way, but writing, if it's going well, can be deeply pleasurable. How is the dread you feel before writing different from the dread you feel before public speaking, if you feel I, that? I don't feel any dread before public speaking. How uh, I know so? That, yeah, most people do. I don't. <laughs> so that I was spared. Um, maybe just growing up in my family, everybody sort of just talked all the time. But um I don't dread writing anymore, um, but I remember how it felt. But that was decades ago. And um, the dread would intensify because I had procrastinated. That is, um, knowing that I had precariously little time, you know, sort of starting to write something at 10 the night before, a 10-page paper that was due the next day, you know, that is a high wire out. So the fear that I might not make the deadline, and, and I got extensions when I could, and then I turned in everything on time if I couldn't get an extension. Um, but uh, it was, the, the fear would increase because the dread had made me put off the act of writing. But again, this is all in my distant past. I remember the person who felt that way. I pity her, but I can't imagine myself just going back and shaking her shoulders and saying, you don't have to be like that. Don't be like that. Because it's like telling an alcoholic to stop drinking. Um, the alcoholic wishes to stop drinking, but until the time is the right time, it's simply not possible. Um, simply wanting to do it is insufficient. I would like to bring up um, some topics from at large and at small and to check in and see how you feel about them now. Great. The mail. Oh, mail. Okay. So that was about um, postal mail versus email. And I wrote that essay really just at the beginning of email. I've been writing uh, email myself for only, what, a couple of years or something when I wrote that essay. So it seemed really newfangled um, and sort of exciting. But I also enjoyed uh, doing the research, especially on the uh, British postal system. The British postal system, of course, in the, let's say, the 19th century being just vastly more efficient and more times a day than any postal system now. Um, I use email all the time. I don't particularly like texting. Uh, and although I enjoy receiving mail in the mail, 
Um, I don't like receiving letters that I have to respond to because again, my perfectionist tendencies are more likely to take over. I feel that a letter that I'm gonna type out and put in an envelope has to be more perfect than an email. So I'd rather get an email. And so if anybody wants to write me, you're gonna get a reply, send me an email, not a letter. Moving from the city to the country, are you the same person? Oh, well, let's see. I've lived now in the country for 23 years. Um, and I spend a couple days a week in the city. The city is now New Haven rather than New York, where I used to live. Um, I don't think I would ever wish to live full time in a city again. I just have to wake up to the sound of bird song. I'm addicted to the beautiful place that we live. However, cities are great. And I'm going to teach at Yale's London branch this summer and be right smack in the middle of the city um, for seven weeks. And I can't wait. The symbolism of the American flag. Ah, yeah, I wrote that right after 9-11. I feel even sadder about the American flag now than I did then. Nine, the only good thing about 9-11 was that it made it possible for liberals um, to fly the flag and to admire the flag and to identify with the flag. And unfortunately it didn't last long. So we still have the flagpole that um, had been erected on our lawn by the previous owners, but we have not flown the American flag that they left us for many, many years. Um, uh, recently, uh, my son, my adult son, needed to send something in an envelope. I guess it was to a friend, um, not just paying a bill, not that he would ever do that <laughs> in an envelope. Um, uh, and I opened my drawer and the only forever stamps I had had American flags. And he said, no, thanks. I just can't use that. My friend will think I'm a Trump supporter. Um, and that made me really sad. But I also thought, gosh, do I really want to use these stamps? He's a great source of quotes, by the way. When you first moved to the country and it was your fourth or fifth visit to the store, he said, this is where we always sit. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, finally... the, uh, my kids usually say things that are much more memorable than I do. Um, coffee as uh, a sort of confidence boost slash fuel slash reassuring force for you. Uh, that's increased over time. Um, I really love coffee. I like the boost that caffeine gives me. I like the taste of coffee, although uh, the kind of person who can drink a demitasse of black espresso would probably think that I have infantile taste because I prefer a latte with sugar. Um, but for me, the best part of the day is when I get up and my husband gets up hours before me, I always work late and the paper is there on the table and I steam milk, uh, froth it, uh, make i usually have um cold brew in the fridge i use that hot coffee as well as cold and i have a huge cup um while i read the paper and then i feel the day can start um having to live without coffee would be very very difficult for me 
My final question for you, Anne, is that I have a fantasy, I'll call it an idea, that um, if I was to write a book that I would be okay with dying because I would leave behind, uh, I'm holding your book in front of you here, that large and that small, <laughs> like knowing that sort of this vestige of me or sort of my ideas that I left a contribution that was economical in size, but dense in content and sort of accessible but something to leave behind that I would feel really satisfied with my life if there was a book as sort of the remnants. Do you think that there's any merit to that? Um, no. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think, you know, it's like escalating to the harder stuff. As soon as you write one book, then you're going to want to write another book and you're going to say, well, you know, if I could just write the second book, then I might be content to die. But of course, none of us should ever feel content to die. We should always want to keep on living. So it's like the horizon, you know, which continues to recede um, even as we walk toward it, even if we start to run, it continues to recede. So, um, uh, yes, I think you should uh, cherish that uh, delusion uh, so that it will provide an incentive for you to write your first book. And then as soon as it's published, um, please bury that delusion and set your sights on the new horizon, which is your second book. But after you've published a few, I think you will feel not that you're content to die, but at least um, relieved that you've left some record that will allow people later to get to know you, um, whether it's a book or if you were a filmmaker or a photographer or a body of art, um, people who are creators in some way get to do that. And I think that's a privilege. So um, please write your first book and then please write several more. Thank you so much for your work, Anne, and thank you for coming on. Oh, it was completely my pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much for inviting me.